About uh, 10 years ago, on the Monday Night Football uh, kind of countdown program on ESPN, they added a feature that they called Come On Man. Um, basically what would happen, all the analysts are sitting around the desk and, and they would take turns going around and they would talk about the dumbest thing that happened in the world of football that week. It could be college football, NFL football, um, CFL football, it didn't matter. Whatever was dumb that happened in the world of football and they would show a clip whether it was on the field or off the field, whatever, they would show a clip and they would talk about why it was so ridiculous that such a player did such a thing or whatever. And they would end their description with, come on, man, like you should know better than to do that. Like it's sort of a a way of saying that was just a really dumb thing to do. I, I was thinking about this week that this entire series that we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 23 is like one long sequence of Jesus saying, Come on, man, to the religious leaders, the Pharisees in the first century in Israel. The self-proclaimed religious leaders of Israel who had in time allowed their their sincere-hearted devotion to God degenerate into something a lot uglier, something that was just more like mere religion, I've been calling it in this series. You know, Jesus says to them, you know, you... You make all of your spiritual decisions in order to please people rather than pleasing God. Come on, man. You you think that faithfulness is an ever-increasing list of rules. Come on, man. You you live the spirit of the law, or you live the, the letter, rather, of the law, while flagrantly violating the spirit of it. Come on, man. You, you major in minor issues, make big deals out of small things, and you completely miss out on the big deal things, the heart of God stuff. Come on, man. You obsess about externals, and all the while you allow evil to fester in your heart. Come on, man. And then one last one that we're going to look at to close out the series. In Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 29, you you can turn there in a Bible or Bible app or whatever you have. Matthew chapter 29, with 23 verse 29, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, You say you want what God wants, but you refuse to listen to what God says. Come on, man. He says this. Verse 29, Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. I I talked about this a little bit last week, about how in the ancient world, it was customary, as it is in our world, around the world today, to build monuments over the tombs of very significant figures. This was very prevalent in the first century in Israel. It started about 50 years before Jesus as a real popular thing. But but it was so popular in the first century, there was a, a book actually published in Israel in the first century called The Lives of the Martyrs, right? People who had died, Uh, for the sake of their faith. 
And in this book, The Lives of the Martyrs, uh, there was actually information about where to find descriptions of the tombs and where to find all of the tombs of the righteous people that have been died that were recorded in the book. It was kind of like a, a Hollywood map of the homes of the stars. And you can give yourself a little guided tour around Israel and visit all the tombs of the famous uh, people. And, and the Pharisees were involved in the funding of the building of these tombs and the maintenance of them and so on. And the Pharisees would say, right, in, as an attempt to honor the legacy of the prophet, almost as a way of reversing the tragic end of their life, right? Preserving their legacy despite their tragic end. And the, and the Pharisees would say, you know what? This is such, such a shame. If we had been alive back in the day, we wouldn't have participated in the killing of the prophets, right? This was something that happened long ago. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 26 talks about it. This is like 500 years before Jesus. And it says this, uh, Nehemiah is talking about why God sent the Babylonian empire to destroy Jerusalem and, and level the temple. And, he, and this is the reason why. He says, but our ancestors were disobedient and rebelled against you, God. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed awful blasphemies. Nehemiah says, you know, he says one of the reasons why God's judgment got poured out on Israel 500 years before Jesus was because Israel refused to listen to the prophets that God sent. Those who God had sent to say, no, no, you guys are wandering off. You're getting it wrong. Come back to what God wants. And instead of responding, they killed the prophets and buried them. And so God judged them. And the Pharisees said, we wouldn't have done that. We would have responded to what they were saying. And Jesus says to them, you guys, you're such hypocrites. He says, you know, the hypocrite, I mentioned this last week, is just a Greek word that means actor or it's someone who's playing a part or playing a role, someone who's putting on a show, someone who's at the end of the day, not externally they, they, what they are internally. They're not what they appear to be. Jesus said to the Pharisees, this is, what, this is what you guys are. You're just, you're putting on this big religious show, despite the fact that in your hearts, your hearts are so far away from what God is all about. He says, this, you, this is another fine example. You, you build these monuments and you make sure that they're clean and they're beautiful. And, and, you know, you say we would have never been involved in killing the prophets. And yet, Jesus says, in your heart, you absolutely would have responded in exactly the same way as your ancestors did. This is what he says in verse 31. He says, you testify against yourselves that you're the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, he says, and complete what your ancestors started. Jesus kind of catches them up in the words that they use. They refer to the people who killed the prophets as our ancestors or literally our fathers. And the implication, if they're our fathers, these were all men, we are their sons. And when you claim to be somebody's son in the ancient world, in the Aramaic language, that could mean one of two things. If you said, I am the son of so-and-so, you could either mean I am their biological descendant, which is what the Pharisees meant, right? I am the son of Irvin F. Krauss. That's biology. Or you could mean 
I bear a remarkable resemblance to so-and-so, right? Now, obviously, those things are, are related. Uh, my wife, I have said in very many environments, my wife is her father's daughter. And you know what I mean by that. It's not, of course, she's her father's daughter. That's a nonsensical statement. She is tall and thin like he is. She's a hard worker like he is. She can't sit still like he couldn't. Like it's all of those characteristics that makes me say, this is her father's daughter. We have a child, our second born, who is her mother's daughter. <laughs> and so I have said to people before, there is a very short and very straight line from Walter to Krista to Kennedy. Because they are all cut out of exactly the same cloth. She, Krista, is the daughter of Walter. And Jesus is kind of, they were saying our ancestors, as in our, you know, those who biologically came before us. And Jesus says, no, they're not just your ancestors biologically. You're their sons in that you are exactly like them. That you would have responded exactly the same way they did, and here's the proof, you're going to continue the family tradition of killing the prophets. Like father, like son, you're going to keep the killing spree going. This is what he says. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? We'll talk about that phrase in a minute. Therefore, he says, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers and some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. J Jesus says, listen, you, you want proof that you're just like them? I'm going to send you prophets. The word prophet just means somebody who speaks on behalf of God. Somebody, especially in the way that they point out a problem in somebody else's belief or behavior or convictions. Somebody who says, no, you're, you're not following God. Come back this way and do it like this. This is what God wants. Jesus says, I'm going to send you sages, the teachers of wisdom, um, those who will talk about the best way to live life, the wisest way for us to live, living in a way that aligns with God's vision for how we handle our money, how we manage our relationships, how we do marriage, living with the grain of the universe instead of against it. Starting next week, we're going to do a series called Staying Power that's all about relationships. And the whole series is going to come out of the wisdom literature of the Jewish scriptures, practical wisdom about how to live in relationships that last. Um, he says, I'm going to send you teachers. People who, whose deep knowledge of the scriptures can help other people understand both what the Bible means and how it's relevant to their everyday lives. In an ideal situation, a church would have someone like that. But you get me. So, so Jesus says, I'm going to send these people to you and guess how you're going to respond. You're going to respond with the same kind of violence your ancestors did. You're going to reject and refuse what they have to say. And you're going to respond with anger and violence. You're going to pursue them from town to town. You're going to flog them in the synagogue. You're going to kill some of them and crucify some others. You're going to behave exactly the way they did. And as a result, Jesus says, the judgment of God is going to fall on you just like it fell on them. This is what he says in verse 35. And so upon you, 
will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all of this will come upon this generation. Jesus says the judgment of God is going to fall upon you for the way that you will continue the tradition of killing the prophets. You are, your actions will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And he says you're going to be held responsible for all of the righteous blood from righteous Abel. Abel was the very first murder mentioned in the Bible. Abel, in fact, uh, and his brother Cain were the children of the very first human beings mentioned in scripture, Adam and Eve. And Cain kills Abel in the fourth chapter of the Bible. By chapter four, we already have people murdering each other. And Abel was innocent and, um, and that was the first murder in the Bible. Zechariah, son of Berechiah, refers to the murder of a priest named Zechariah in the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, which was actually towards the end of the very last book of the Jewish scriptures. 13 chapters from the end of the Jewish scriptures. So you have the very first murder of an innocent person and the very last murder of an innocent person and all of the bloodshed in between. Jesus says you're going to be held responsible for it all. And the judgment of God is going to fall. He mentions judgment three times in this passage. I'll, I'll deal with this quickly. The first time is in verse 33 when he says, how will you escape being condemned to hell? In the Greek text, uh, what that phrase means, is, what it says is the judgment of Gehenna. Gehenna was a literal place, a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem. And when the Babylonian empire attacked and sacked and raided and destroyed and leveled the city of Jerusalem, they would throw the corpses of the dead Israelites over the wall in the city into the valley of Hinnom, the Ge Gehenna. And they lit them all on fire. And that's the valley of the dead. That's where the dead bodies burned. Jesus is predicting, not that they're going to go to hell after they die. Jesus is predicting that Jerusalem will be destroyed again. In verse 38, he says, Jerusalem, your house will be left to you desolate, uninhabited. Your city will be leveled. The temple will be destroyed. And in verse 36, which I just read, he says, all of this will come upon this generation. He, Jesus is speaking in 30 or 33, uh, the year 33 in the common era, in 70, the year 70 in the common era, the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem, sacked the city, leveled it, destroyed the temple, and the bodies of dead Jews were burned in the valley of Gehenna all over again. Jesus says this to the Pharisees, because you are closed to what God wants to speak to you through the prophets, because you refuse to listen and instead you respond with violence. The judgment of God is coming. Because this is really, this is what Jesus is critiquing in the Pharisees. He, the Pharisees lived in a closed theological system. A closed faith system. They knew the scriptures better than anybody. And assumed that because that was true, that they had figured out faith better than anybody. 
That they had figured out who God is better than anybody. That they had figured out their doctrine and their theology better than anybody. That they had figured out what convictions God wanted them to have and how he wanted them to live out their religious life and their moral life better than anybody. And they were absolutely fundamentally not open to the idea that someone like Jesus, who the people called the prophet, would come along and say, guys, I don't think you're getting what God is saying. What if you read the scriptures this way? What if you interpret it in light of that passage? What if you think about God through this lens? What if what God is saying is this? And Jesus is continually trying to refocus their thinking and they're absolutely closed to the idea. They refuse it from Jesus and they refuse it from uh, those who came after Jesus, his disciples. I mean, just think about this. These guys were fundamentally convinced that they understood exactly who God was. And yet when God himself stood in front of them in the form of Jesus, they didn't recognize him. That's how wrong they were. They were absolutely confident that they knew the way God was calling them to live. And yet when Jesus said, hey, this is how God is calling us to live. They absolutely ignored and rejected what he had to say. And in fact... Jesus says, you are going to go on killing the prophets. Jesus will be dead on a cross within three days at the hands of the Pharisees because they so violently responded to the idea that Jesus was suggesting that God wanted to correct their beliefs, correct the way they think, correct their convictions and their behavior. And friends, I think the temptation is great among us, especially those of us who've been around the faith a long time, especially those of us who have um, a deep knowledge of the scriptures. The further you go in faith, the more tempting it is to believe that you've figured it out. That you generally know what the scriptures teach. That you generally understand what God is trying to say. That you generally have a handle on who God is and on the life that God is calling us to. That you generally get what your faith is going to look like and the moral choices that God wants you to make. And as you become convinced that you're getting more and more solid in your understanding, you become more and more closed to somebody saying, hey, wait a minute. What if we look at that like this? Wait a minute. What if we read this scripture completely differently? What if this scripture doesn't say that? What if it says this? What if God is calling us to behave this way rather than that way? We become closed-hearted and closed-minded to the idea of looking at things differently than, we've all, than the way we've already convinced ourselves is right. And in extreme versions, depending on the stakes in the conversation, in my experience, I, I was going to say in extreme versions, sometimes we react violently to that. Now, we don't, we don't murder prophets anymore. We don't burn heretics at the stake. I'm thankful for that. I've been called a heretic and a few times in the last 20 years. Um, but we respond with other kinds of violence. We respond with psychological violence. We respond with relational violence. We respond with uh, attitudinal violence. We commit acts of violence um, 
with our, with our heart attitude towards somebody. Right? Rejecting their opinion, dismissing them because they don't know what they're talking about. Not even considering their perspective worth considering. We commit violence against people in our hearts. We treat them with contempt. We, we condescend. We um, insult them. I mean, that's maybe more violence with our words. We respond with sarcasm and with insult and attack. Hate and anger. And when the stakes of the conversations get high, there have been times in my experience talking to people about different ways to think about the origins of the universe. Different ways to think about what happens in the afterlife. These, for some people, different ways to think about whether or how much women should be involved in the, in the leading and teaching in the church. These are high stakes conversations that people can react violently to. And it's the exact opposite of what Jesus is inviting us into. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, the Apostle Paul, I think, is fleshing out the positive, the constructive side of the very thing Jesus is addressing. And he says this, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Paul says, when somebody stands up and says, I think God is saying this. I read the scriptures and this is what I think it says. When somebody stands up and says, you know what? I think, I think God wants you to hear this. I think you need to confront this attitude in your heart. I think you need to change this behavior. Paul says, when somebody stands up and speaks on behalf of God, don't treat that word with contempt. Don't belittle it. Don't ignore it. Don't disdain it. Don't consider it unworthy of consideration. Give it its due attention. Don't treat the messenger with contempt. Don't respond with arrogance and condescension, closed-mindedness, insult, attack, whatever. What do you know? You don't know what you're talking about. Don't respond that way. He says, when you do, when you respond with that closed-minded, closed-hearted, reactionary attitude towards somebody who says, wait a minute, I disagree. Paul says, you, you quench the spirit. Literally, the text says, you, you douse the fire of the Holy Spirit's work and life in and among you. What Paul is saying is when somebody stands up and says, I think God may be saying this, approach that with an attitude of openness, with open-mindedness, with open-heartedness, an attitude that is open to considering new ideas rather than thinking, well, I've already got this God thing figured out. I already know who God is. I already know what the scriptures say. I already know how I'm called to live. Rather than coming with this closed-mindedness that says, I've already answered my questions. I've already dotted my I's and crossed my T's. There's nothing to talk about. Come with a fundamental perspective of openness that says, I wonder what you have to add to the way that I have been thinking about the scriptures, the way I've been thinking about God, the way I've been thinking about life, the way I've been thinking about whatever. Paul says, come with a fundamental openness that allows the Holy Spirit the space to work in your life through somebody else's contribution. Because let me let you in on a little secret. You don't have it figured out. St. Augustine lived 500 years after Jesus. He said this once. He said, if you can understand it, it's not God. 
Another way to say that is when you're talking about God, if you fully understand what you're talking about and you can clearly articulate it to somebody else, you're wrong. At least in part about what you're saying about God. Because there's too much mystery, too much depth, too much breadth, too much scope, too little of the revelation for us to ever claim to understand who God is and to fully understand what he wants from our lives. We are constantly in the process of evolving our understanding of the life that God has invited us into, of who he is and what a relationship with him looks like. So, Paul says, when somebody says, what about this? What if we look at it this way? Don't treat that with contempt. Instead, now he, what he doesn't mean is, okay, just accept every idea, right? So you're going to be open. That doesn't mean you're so open-minded that your brains fall out. Like you're just, it's not that every perspective is equally valid. He goes on to say this, but test them all in, in verse 20 or 21. But test them all, test all the prophecies. Put everything to a rigorous test. Apply your critical faculties to thinking through what the person has said. To ask yourself, is this valid? John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement, would say, test it according to scripture. Does what you're saying align with what all the scriptures teach? Test it according to tradition. Does it fall within or outside the scope of what Christians have believed? He would say, test it according to reason and science. Does it make sense? Does it align with what science tells us is true about our world and about humanity and about life? He would say, test it according to your experience. Does it ring true of your experience of life? He says, don't just blindly accept everything either. Test everything, but. But when he says test everything, this is what he means. Test everything in community. When Paul writes the word test, that is a plural verb. He is writing it to a community that is gathered in community. It is the community that discerns the truthfulness of what has been proposed. The community does that. As an individual, I don't care how much you, how well you or I know the scriptures. As individuals, we are each fundamentally unqualified to render an assessment about the truthfulness of something that has been said. The only way, Paul says, to discern the truthfulness of something is within community. And by community, he does not mean gathering around yourself, your eight best buddies that you know already agree with everything you think because you all think the same thing. He means surrounding yourself with the church, which is a diverse community of diverse perspectives. It is only when you have subjected your opinion, your beliefs, your thoughts, your convictions, your spirituality, and your behavior to the input of a diverse community and listened in dialogue to other people's perspectives and viewpoints and readings and theologies that you can begin together in dialogue as a community move towards a deeper understanding of the truth. In Acts chapter 15, there's a story about a church facing a critical juncture where they had to make an important decision about the kind of church they were going to be where they didn't all agree with each other. And it says in Acts chapter 15, after much discussion, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The dialogue in the community that included all the diverse perspectives 
allowed the community together, led by the Holy Spirit, to come to a common understanding of where God was leading them to be. That's what it means to test everything. And once you've tested it, he says this, verse 21, hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Once you've tested, once the diverse community has all weighed in and in dialogue you've come to agree as a community about what God is saying, he says, then embrace that. Grab a hold of it. The word hold on uh, is the Greek word to possess, to cling to. Make it your own. Embrace it and internalize it. Allow it to change the way you think. Allow it to change what you believe. Allow it to change your heart, to change your convictions, to change your spirituality, to change the morality of your choices. Allow what the community has discerned to be true to do its changing work in you. Accept everything that the community agrees aligns with the heart of God. And then he says, and then reject everything else. The Greek word just means, you know, keep your distance from it. Put distance between you and all the other stuff that doesn't line up to the standard. Just kind of ignore it and move on. See, here's the interesting thing. When Paul says, test everything, keep the good, reject the bad. His expectation is that nobody speaks entirely truly about God all the time. In fact, I think it's safe to say that everything that can be said about God as true is a mixture of truth and error. Every, this entire sermon is a mixture of truth and error. Which is why I have said to you repeatedly, never always believe everything that I say. And that is my favorite grammatical construction, never always. Never always believe everything that I say. Don't do it. I've told you about my professor who says, you know, 30% of everything I believe is wrong and I won't know what 30% it is until we talk about it. Right? The, Paul's expectation is that everything we say about God is some mixture of truth and error, which I find incredibly liberating. I don't have to be exactly right because I can't be, and neither can you be. I think we're so afraid that we're going to get it wrong. We're so afraid that we're going to get our beliefs wrong. We're so afraid that we're going to think about things wrong. We're going to have the wrong convictions or the wrong attitudes or make the wrong choices. And guess what Paul says? Of course you are. Of course you are. You're going to get some of it right and some of it wrong. There's no other way to do anything else. So surround yourself with a diverse community of people who love Jesus and who love people and who are growing in their knowledge of the scriptures who can all add their perspective and talk it through as a group so that you dialogue together and discern what is more true than what you currently hold to. That's what it looks like to go through life with an open-hearted, open-minded attitude that is ready, willing, and able to hear God speak. And allow it to change you from the inside. That's what it looks like to live devotion to Christ. And I saw a beautiful example of it this last week among our friends. About a year ago, Krista and I were visiting with a couple. And she, the couple, the wife of the couple was telling us about how when she was a baby, her mom used to talk about what an empathetic baby she was. That if somebody else cried, if she was in the room, she would start crying too. And just her mother just said, oh, you were so empathetic. And Krista, my wife, you know, perhaps inelegantly responded by saying, really? I've never really thought of you as an, in, as an empathetic person. In fact, there would be some secrets that I have that I'd be hesitant to share with you because I'd be afraid that you wouldn't be able to empathize with me, that you wouldn't be empathetic towards me. And with that, the conversation kind of changed and, and we talked about other things. 
This last week, Krista was together with that friend and she said to Krista for the first time, the reason the topic changed was because I was furious at what you had said. I was so mad. I couldn't believe that one of my closest friends was saying such hurtful things, insulting things about me. And I couldn't talk about it, so we changed the subject. She said, but I went away from that conversation. I began to ask myself a question. Why would someone who knows me well and who loves me deeply say that I'm an unempathetic person? It wasn't a defensive question. It wasn't like, how dare she? It was just, I wonder what would prompt her to say such a thing about me. I wonder whether God was speaking to me in that situation. And so she began to ponder it, to test it. She brought her husband into the conversation and said, what did you think about what was said? And what did you think about what that says about me? And after a long conversation, he said to her, I, I think there's something to what Krista was saying. And his friend said to my wife this last week, over the last year, I've done a lot of work with God on my heart to become the kind of empathetic friend that you would feel safe to tell your deepest, darkest secrets to. And I want to thank you for speaking that word into my life. Here's somebody who heard something that may be from God and didn't treat it with contempt and didn't treat my wife with contempt, even if she phrased it, could have been more polite about it. Instead, she took it away and she tested it in community with other people who love Jesus and know her well and decided that there was some things God wanted to teach her. And she began to do that work with God. She embraced the good and just ignored everything else, including the inelegance with which Krista expressed her thoughts. Didn't harm their friendship or affect them in any way. Krista didn't even know there was an issue. That's what it looks like to live with a kind of open-hearted, open-minded perspective that's ready, willing, and able to allow God to speak truth, the kind of truth that transforms. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. That's why Jesus came. The ultimate irony of this passage is that Jesus is talking to a group of people saying, you are going to murder the prophets, and he's saying it, as a prophet who will be murdered by them within days. And they think murdering Jesus is the solution to their problem. They'll get rid of Jesus once and for all. The truth of the matter is their murder of Jesus, Jesus allowing his life to be taken on the cross, is actually the solution to our brokenness problem. That's the solution to our sin problem. That's the solution to the fact that we live our spiritual lives to please people instead of God. That's the solution to the fact that, um, that we think faithfulness is an ever-increasing list of rules. That we live out the letter of the law but violate the spirit of it. That we major in the minors and miss out on the heart of God, that we obsess with externals and allow evil to fester in our hearts, and that we say that we're open to what God wants, but we're closed to what God says, that Jesus would give his life on the cross is actually what brings the forgiveness 
and the transformation by the Holy Spirit to become the people he's inviting us to be, people whose lives transcend mere religion and who get to live out a sincere-hearted, fully devoted life to Christ. And that's what we're celebrating this morning as we come to the communion table. And so as the host in your location comes to the front to lead us through a reflection exercise, Come to Jesus this morning. Come to the cross. Thank God that this, that the prophet Jesus allowed himself to die so that we could live the life he's invited us to live. Let's come to the table together.